Hello, dear lurkers. Welcome back to another episode of the Third Age Babylon 5 podcast. And damn, it's an episode I wish I wasn't here for. And I can't do this without alcohol. So cheers. The Long Dark we're talking about. And yeah, it was anticipated in comments before that I wouldn't like them. And yes, I didn't. But um, before I go on with my ranting back to our introduction question for today's episode, which is a bit more nicer than the episode itself, at least for me. So um, the question um, today is, um, if we could time travel, where do, do we go? Where would, where would we want to go um, and why? So who wants to start? I can start. Um, and yeah, this uh, this will not be a short and easy answer to this, actually. Because my first impulse is always to say I want to go into the future and I want to maybe have an intelligent time machine like the TARDIS where I could ask, ask a question of where should I go because I would like to go as far into the future that I could see what humanity will evolve to in the next interesting steps in evolution, but also not too far so that I could still find them and make them out. So I don't know. I would really like to see how humanity looks in, I don't know, five million years if we make it until then. That would be very interesting. But also I could imagine to go to these important dates in the past. I could imagine to go into the Neolithic era and go into one of the very, very first cities like Jericho or something like that, where you are really at the at the birth uh, date of a civilization as we know it. So dates like these would definitely interest me. Um, another thought I had was maybe the um, late medieval, early modern period, because I write a novel in that time frame. But I guess the other dates would be much more, much more seductive because yeah, they are much more difficult to grasp and much more difficult to imagine and to research. There was a low response. <laughs> Some very decent response. Um, yeah, I I have a little trouble figuring out because I, with a general interest in history, like every. Every either would be interested. I maybe this is a boring answer, but I would actually be kind of interested in just going back to the turn of the century to a time frame where we have like so much history and such a firm established image of what the world is like, and just being able to go back there and see like how accurate is this actually would would be quite interesting. And then just spending the rest of a lifetime figuring out where the sources went wrong. I don't know. Yeah, well, I have to say, I'm. I, I think I wouldn't go into or want to go into the future, um, just because I'm. I'm. I don't like the idea of, um, yeah, the, that the future is set in stone. This this kind of things. So um, I would also go back in the uh, time and have a look, like I don't know, ancient Greece or uh, the time where fancy balls were still a thing. Um, but not necessarily, um, yeah, being part of this, just looking there, uh, especially because in the latter part, I would really have a problem because I really can't dance. Um, I'm afraid I go after my dad for more dancing beers. So, for answer to that and back to the long dark. Yeah, well, the... Very, very short um, synopsis summarization would be um, we have a very old 
spaceship from Earth reappearing uh, with a survivor and again people are dying or well one people one was already dead one on the on B5 is killed and the big question is what is it who is it and why and yeah it all resolves in um, a big shooting and yeah, well, that's about it in this episode. It's it's a very straightforward plot, the way you describe it. I, I like it. Yeah, well, obviously, I left out the, the, the thing I have very much problem in this episode, and that is Franklin's, well, I, I don't want to call it romance experience, because, no, it, it oh, it feels so wrong. Um, so... <clears throat> This this time we have to skip my first impression because I will start ranting the whole episode long. So maybe you two um, will go for uh, this one. I have this sneaking suspicion that we will get your general impression throughout this entire discussion, Springfield. So that works quite well. I mean, it, the, the general consensus on this episode is fairly similar to that so we're used to it as fans of Babylon 5 at this point um my first impression on this reviewing is it wasn't actually as bad as I remembered it being as in the Franklin parts were worse than I remembered but then the rest of it was slightly more interesting than I remembered so it kind of held the balance there uh, but in general it still feels to me very similar to the Drazi plot that we talked about with the green and purple conflict where there is an interesting idea here on this episode. I feel like there's multiple interesting ideas here, but they are all kind of undercooked. And I, I have this sense that we will probably be able to have a really good discussion about it, but it's not really the episode itself that's providing a lot of the of the content there. And for that reason, it's, it's maybe a neat conversation starter, but as an episode overall, I, I can't say I'm a huge fan. Yeah, I also remember from the first watch through this episode as um, one of those little adventures that you just sometimes have in a sci-fi show. Uh, like it, for me, at that point, it had not, nothing super special. Um, so, yeah. The other thing is that um, you know, I have to, I have to, I have to start with this issue, but. Uh, watching it now, I see a lot more red flags in certain characters, which is nice because it showed it shows that I grew up since I last watched it. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe on my part, uh, to not address the elephant in the room right up front, um, I would go with, um, yeah, the beginning is that we have the Copernicus or the USS Copernicus. Um appearing uh, with an automatic uh, recording and I, I, I find this, this um, quite interesting because usually you have this this feeling of um, yeah like like a, um, a, what was it, what is it called a time capsule mm -hmm. um, from from the past where you usually you have this kind of people in this in, in this spaceship, um, that those watching it can relate to. Like, oh yeah, this person uh, could be someone from, I don't know, my neighborhood or at least from 
my reality um, because it's usually the time. That's what not what we have here, but also this this space science fiction time that um, we have shown here, um, where it, they are already um, at this yeah different line of of um, reality. You, I think you could say. I think that's a really interesting aspect of it, right? That once again hammers down this idea the Babylon 5 universe has history. It's not just our modern world and then somehow it turns into the world of Babylon 5. We know that there are these different stages where they've been spacefaring and they had cryotubes, right? They have this whole stasis technology that usually is a staple of an entire science fiction setting. And here, that entire setting is already outdated and part of history as well, which, which is a really interesting thing. And now, this is one of the elements that for me worked a little bit better in this episode than I anticipated because usually I'm really not a big fan of these episodes where somebody relatable goes into the sci-fi setting because for me very often it then feels like it's the authors kind of patting themselves on the back and being like, oh my god, let's write this character that will tell everybody how cool this world is that we invented and then it's a little bit just like, yeah... I mean, I already think this is very cool. This is why I'm watching the show. I don't really need a character on screen going, ooh, ah, it's a spaceship for the first time. Uh, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad that Babylon 5 immediately takes a little bit of a different turn here. And I have to think of, um, I think for Star Trek The Next Generation, where this this kind of setting is really memorable for me. Mm. Um because there are um, there's a group of people um, that gets rescued. I think they were, yeah, they were um, frozen because um, they had all some kind of illness, deadly, terminal, mm -hmm. and um, like yeah, in the future there will be uh, a way to to heal, um, and. On, in one way, that it, in Star Trek, this, it all happens, and oh, this is completely different. And to also to show, yeah, we evolved; the human uh, kind evolved so much um, from from this, yeah, from from our watchers' point of view. And here in B five, we don't have that. It's like, no, no, we are the, still the same assholes as we were um, back in time. So yeah, I, I really like this this. Um, cliche taken and completely smashed. Um, I like this turn, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm so glad that you bring this up because I've been thinking today the entire day, how do I jam this next generation reference into this discussion and now I don't have to. But yeah, what, what you describe is also this episode where famously you have the great enlightened Picard explaining to people that we in the future we aren't interested in accumulation of wealth anymore. We work for our own self-improvement, which has been like a sticking point in this canon forever now. And I think it's a wonderful like side-by-side -side comparison because on the one hand, I I think it definitely has this element of Babylon 5 saying, yeah, no, we, we didn't evolve past war and conflict. Everything is just as bad as it ever was. But at the same time, in handling the story, I think... It's a wonderful showcase how Babylon 5 isn't cynical about this. And 
to be a bit controversial, I think Star Trek sometimes is because in Star Trek, it's very much this idea, people of the 21st century suck. If you have just a random selection of people from the 21st century brought onto the Enterprise, they are the assholes and they're going to be greedy. And because they're greedy, our world sucks and there's just nothing you can do about it. And when Picard says, we evolved past this, he will never in a million years elaborate how. This, like, it offers absolutely no idea how do you get to this better enlightened point. It's just saying, wouldn't it be neat if everybody was better than they are? Which I feel like is can be a hopeful message, but it can also be very cynical and, and like, self-deprecating. And here in Babylon 5, you have this world where, yeah, everything sucks, but this episode, in dealing with the entire, uh, you know, situation of having a lurker as a central character in this episode, also immediately gives you a very strong uh, direction. If we were to prevent, like, improve our world, here's a very clear path on how to do that. And just addressing one issue very clearly. And that, I feel like, is a very hopeful because it tells you, hey, if you freeze yourself and wait a hundred years, the world isn't magically going to become a better place, but there are ways you can improve things right now. And that, that I find very hopeful. Now I have to ask, do you remember this uh, Star Trek episode in the, the more clear? Because I'm not sure if every one of these frozen people were assholes. Um, I just have to think if we, uh, I want to ask if we think of the same episode because I have one in mind, but it has been so long since I've watched it. I don't know if it was TNG or the original series. Um, um, one of them definitely is like this typical boomer capitalist. He definitely, we have this one old dude who is like, you have your uncle who works in a bank over and he tells you how to make millions and you don't want to. One of them is, but I yeah. think there were two more, and they were had a bit more layers than this one, right? I remember this this um, yeah rich ass guy, and um, then there was um, I think it was a mus musician um, who was playing guitar and uh, yeah a bit of a drinker, I think with the uh, yeah had the the resolution in all this with yeah hey i can play all my old songs again no one knows them anymore <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah i remember uh, i mean on uh, on one hand i mean okay that's that's really positive way of thinking um in, in in this situation on the other hand um yeah it's, it's also really going in this this direction of um it, it's not about the money but of fame i i will generate fame through the music i already um put out which i know works or at least worked back then and yeah i will be famous again i mean what is definitely the case i am simplifying things if i make a blanket statement like that right there's uh, also many yeah. other episodes in in star trek that have this what is the case what i would say is that they often like any character of the past that you see in Star Trek usually falls in one of two categories. Either it's an asshole of some description, or we also very often see people that need to be rescued, that often have very conveniently lost all their family in the old time, and then it's just, ah, you know, the Star Trek world is just so cool, I just want to live here now. I have no problem with, you know, leaving my entire reality behind, which I find obnoxious in other ways. 
but there are certainly also exceptions to that. That's definitely the case. Yeah, but I, I, I can't remember um, one person in, in any constellation, in any Star Trek um, yeah, episode um, I have seen that there was someone from the past who, where you were, oh yeah, I like this person. And, oh, I can totally feel how this person, uh, yeah, how this, the, the emotions are for this person. That which, which, which tells a lot because they are depicting us, basically. Yeah. I mean, this is <laughs> so well, arrogant to say, yeah, every, everyone is, is, is horrible and yeah. I mean, it, it, it kind of has this issue. You go first. It comes down to the main premise in Star Trek that I find difficult that, um, as you have said, Picard never explains what happens, why is everything better, why are we better in our world now, um, because he it has just this theory that he evolved, because as soon as you have warp drive, you evolve to something better and everything functions, and it's just that you magically are the next step of people. And that is just uh, something, I mean, that, that would be as if when we talk about time traveling, as we did in our introduction question, as if I would assume that in medieval times, everybody was too stupid to wash their hands. And that's why we had the plague, which is definitely not how it worked. But um, there's just this, yeah, magically people get better and people from the past are just, yeah, well, they, they don't have this one gene, they're stupid. <laughs> it's, it's kind of hard to write a science fiction setting on the premise people have evolved past personal conflict and this is why the world is so great without in turn saying your world in the present time isn't perfect because you people are the problem yeah. right and and there it becomes a little bit although i will stress here this is not something that star trek alone is guilty of i mean in in the entirety of stargate you kind of have this premise only the stargate program can interact with aliens because if the if normal people found out it would be chaos and anarchy and everybody would immediately freak out because we are just not evolved enough to handle this properly which at some point also becomes ridiculous yes especially because in in, in sg1 in the second half where the russians constantly make argumentations on why that is fucked up how we deal with it and they are written as the villains that have the better arguments <laughs> that's a bit sad and we also, I mean, I think we should also stress that none of this stops us from watching Stargate or from watching Star Trek. We are fans. We like that. We just have our points. I, I, I think just the general, the general emotions that this episode of Babylon 5 evokes spills over when we now start <laughs> talking about other topics. It's going to be very hard to be very positive about things. We were, but we were, we were talking about this time capsule um, um, thing. I, actually, this is interesting. I have never thought about this kind of episodes as episode to make the world relatable to us, to have characters that are more like us. Because, um, yeah, when I look at this lady written in the 90s with her on and off relationship, I, I don't think I can relate at all. But, you know, um, so that was an interesting point. I felt like, oh, that's why we always have these episodes. But it had never occurred to me. I don't, I don't, I don't think I ever had that with anyone. One thing that I really love about this episode, though, and that is part of this plot that I wish had been more explored, because this premise that we have, this woman from a hundred years ago that comes into our world and is confronted with the fact that our world isn't perfect, I think there's a really cool story here. And the best glimmer of that that we see is when, when she encounters Jakar, who tells her this wonderful quote, the future isn't what it used to be. 
And just this as a premise of saying, hey, the world kind of sucks still, but on the other hand, you now can meet this really cool alien who feels exactly the same thing. And that in and of itself, like having this wider horizon, even if the world hasn't become perfect, that is so much possibility there. And there I also have to think of another Star Trek example that really fucked that up, actually. That Babylon 5 would have had the chance to make that better because there is an, an episode in TNG also where they accidentally exposed themselves to uh, pe to people that still live in this Bronze Age uh, level. Mm. And of course the assumption is they are still in the Bronze Age and they have to be stupid, although that we know that that's not the case, they have our brain size, but anyway. And um, they also write it that way that Picard is not able to explain to these people why he cannot bring um, the dead people back to life because they see his spaceship, they see his technology and it's written like, so they think he's he's God, he's a magician, he can do anything. And as if they were not able to grasp the fact that we have all of this technology and still the dead are dead. And it was just that he stayed this magician to them and that was supposed to show that, you know, they are just not evolved enough to under, and that's just, that hurt. That's just something that, I, I, that's not how it works, honestly. If you told them, we can do this, we can fly through space, but we still have these laws of physics or this we still cannot do, why should they not grasp it? And so, yeah, that that is an interesting um, um, opportunity to play around with that thought of how do characters react to seeing all of this, all of this, oh, now I miss the English word, all of this, all of this. Progress. Progress. All of this progress. Um, and also exploring what is new, what are all of these wonderful new things that we can do, and what still doesn't work. What still, where, where, are, where are the limits still? Because I think just this thought of hey, never mind what we find, we still have limitations. Um, that that's interesting to It is, and I, I mean, there it might even be interesting if the gap was larger than these hundred years still. But it is definitely still there, and. I mean, we get in this episode a small glimmer of that. This woman from a hundred years ago had no concept of hyperspace at all. But guess what? Her head doesn't explode when Franklin tells her, oh, we have gates that go into hyperspace and this is how we have interstellar travel. Because, oh my God, people have an imagination that allows them to understand concepts that they don't have seen on their own. It's almost like abstract thinking is a thing that humans can do. Maybe a little bit something on that. Do you have maybe some of you have seen then these postcards that are that were illustrated and painted like a hundred years ago also from how the twenty first century looks like and then you have like people who who um what what is on there, like people who can have shoes that can fly and all of these and it all looks like late um nineteenth century, so super retro magical stuff. Um and nothing of that was ever invented, but it just yeah super sweet and nice imaginations and it's also this wonderful example where if you break down the concepts on there they are still completely valid you can see that these people have the same level of imagination like if you were to explain the warp drive to them they get the premise even though they haven't heard of star trek before i might say something controversial for some people out there but yes um the thing with uh, a vaccination the idea is you get a plan integrated in your body that your body can break down to build something to fight the disease it's originated from. You do not have to understand the, the biochemical um, reactions that are going through 
in your body or that are um, that were, uh, were done to um, get to this vaccination to understand the concept. So goes in indirectly this thing, right? Like you don't expect like whenever you have this idea, somebody in medieval times sees electricity and can only conceptualize it as magic. Like why they they have exactly as much theoretical knowledge of of electricity as your average Joe using a toaster has. Right? Like most of us don't really look into the science behind it and fully grasp that. Yeah, and I mean, so many other things can look like magic as well. That you just I think humans just have the brains to understand the laws and the limitation behind um, things in our environment that we can use and see. So we've now well established all the great potential that this story uh, of our uh, visitor out of time would have if she got to spend any time with literally anybody else except Franklin. Before we get to that, maybe we can make a point. Did, did, what, what, do, uh, what do we think of this time capsule theme in this episode? Has that been used well or not well? I mean, we have already established that there is a bit of unused potential, but do you think it was well written or do you think it was not so well suited for that topic? I have to say, in the end, the resolution I'm kind of fine with. That she says, I don't want to stay on this station in the middle of nowhere where I was never supposed to be. I'm going to go back to Earth, take some time off, and just get get a grasp on what has happened. I will bury my husband, I will grieve, I will maybe find out if there's people of my family still around and stuff like that. And as far as dealing with somebody like that, I find that's about as good as it gets. Honestly, at that point, I thought, okay, she wasn't written that bad. <laughs> yes. uh, that that really made it for me because, yeah, the the whole in-between, well, let's keep that for later. But, um, yeah, at that point, it's, I was okay. Yeah, there, it, it wasn't good, but it was okay for me at this point. And uh, Maybe we should go to someone I thought was good. Sure. I call him Murdoch. And I will keep calling him Mark. No, whatever what you say. Um, I I don't know. He's he. I mean, he um has appeared in in Star Trek. I mean, he's like, um, yeah, he's he's the kind of oh, we need a crazy guy. Yeah, yeah, yes. Let's let's get this guy from from the A team. Uh, I don't know what's the actor name and played the uh, the Matt guy. The the Murdoch, I think, was the name. And then you have this, I don't know, it's, it's, I have a similar feeling, uh, I'm afraid, with, with Johnny Depp these days. Um, I think he's playing always the same role, um, just with different makeup. Um, but I have to say, in, in this episode, I really, really liked um, the character he was portraying um, and far better than uh, in Star Trek because this character has emotions, that has different layers, has a dimension um, that is more than uh, I'm the crazy guy, um, has a background story and everything. And yeah, I loved it. I can wholeheartedly agree with this. Like with the time capsule story, I feel like that's a good starting point and that is neat, but I wish they, they would have done more with it. Out of everything in this episode, uh, Amos's Murdoch's plot uh, about his starting point having just random visions on this ram random trauma to the resolution and just the fact that 
he doesn't even die in this episode. He actually gets to live, which was an amazing surprise every time I watch this episode. Feels like the most fully formed. There is an actual character arc in there. It has great interactions with our usual cast. And I feel like this is also where the episode really has a strong idea that it wants to get across and is quite successful. Yeah, what Alex also said to me when we watched uh, these scenes was that it's interesting to see that we um, have so many characters from Earth that have some kind of um, consequence to still suffer from from the Membari War that we see here. It's not just for the soldiers, for the uh, uh, leading heroes of the war that leaves a mark on so many different people, which was very interestingly yeah, used and woven into this normal daily life story on that space station. So that was really good. And I mean, even just the fact that, yeah, the Mimbari was a thing. Our big, like, plot thread about the Mimbari mystery is kind of resolved. Linnea told us what it's all about. But just because we as the audience know this now doesn't mean that it's resolved in the world and that we still see, like, how much this is a topic for the everyday people that live on Babylon 5. I was really glad to see it. I mean, if we... If <laughs> Kind of the feeling that if I have nothing to bicker about, there's not much I have to say. <laughs> I mean, we, we maybe let's let's go through his story in this episode because this is the big thing, right? Uh, unless you want to talk about the romance, but we can, you know, leave that <laughs> on the side. Uh, but I mean, the one thing we we asked uh, in parts in season one about is: Are we ever going to see more about lurkers? Right? Like there is an impoverished entire class of people on this station. Are we ever going to dig into this? And I think this episode does this really successfully by putting one of these lurkers on center stage and giving us the reason, like, why are people on this station so impoverished and in this uh, condition? Well, because they're veterans that nobody takes care of, as an example, that have to deal with these kinds of issues. And I think this is really nice to see that the show acknowledges this as an issue that exists and um, seeing how all the different characters react to this, I find very, very interesting, like how, who refers to him by name, who refers to him by just this lurker, who trusts his word, who doesn't, and for me, this is also one of the um, big standout performances in this episode, is that Garibaldi really shines as somebody who is consistent in recognizing people who are troubled and helping them. And this isn't a one-episode thing. We know Garibaldi does this. He did it with Sinclair before. It's just nice to see that this side to him is persistently there and he's helping. He's actually good at this. And I think also what um, there's this in, there's, there's this moment where he is telling uh, Murdoch I believe you. Mm. And to hear this has so much impact. Um, yeah, I, I, the, you, you re the the emotions you had before that uh, was, was played out were really, really beautiful to see. And then this I believe you moment, you you can feel it already see how the, the yeah, the the pain starts to crumble at least a bit away. I'm not alone anymore. Yes. And I think there are these two distinct layers to it, which I really appreciate that on the one hand, Garibaldi is open to saying, okay, you tell me there is a weird ghost creature that can go through walls. I believe you in this. But it's also that he recognizes 
helping this man has not only to do with playing into his delusions or whatever that is that he's talking about, but there's the secondary layer of seeing, I, I recognize that you were in this war. I know that this is a toll that it takes on people. And I'm just going to be there for you in this level as well. Down to the, the fact that in this episode we learn, even though they are never featured, there are counselors on Babylon 5. And honestly, they do apparently do more counseling than any counselor I've ever seen on the Enterprise. They just read your thoughts. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's just this element that this exists clearly as an issue. And uh, Amos is also very quickly and very well pointing out great that counselors are there who can pay those people it's horrible to get a place there which is you know since the past 30 years that the show existed definitely not a situation that has improved for anybody so <laughs> congratulations on that i guess humanity um but just this idea that um even if this wasn't an episode about a weird ghost creature from space this is still also this level of just people being deployed, people coming back from that, and, uh, yeah, the the trouble of dealing with this. Um, yeah, and I mean, what we also have here in this plot is definitely a trope that can and perhaps be problematic, that you are often have in sci-fi fantasy stories where uh, you have a weird character who seems to have come up with a super weird story that seems like, yeah, that seems delusional, like a fantastic fantasy or something, but you have a true core to it in the end, uh, which is a trope to, yeah, and that can be super cool. And I think in Babylon 5, you often have this trope. We've already had that a few times in season one, and each time it played out well. It was written in a way that it was used very good. Um, because sometimes it can be, it, it, sometimes this in other shows and other books, it has sometimes been annoying to me. Um, we've just recently watched Harry Potter and we're like, just in, if you just see it in the movie, okay, so the, the painting at the wall just told me that the voices I'm hearing are problematic. That's a bit, sometimes it cannot work out, but I think here it was, it was used well because we are in um confronted with riddles in space constantly and you have a character who seems to have come up with a super weird fantasy but um, some things that you encounter in life can get you to that point and you still need someone to 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 look at that and maybe find a true car and maybe find something that caused them it's not just black and white sometimes it's it, there is this gray zone and I think that's once again used very and I think what helps this aspect a lot is, like you mentioned earlier, that we see not just one token example of this. Like this is when we think about uh, Dwight Schultz's role in Star Trek as uh, Lieutenant Barkley. Then one of the problems you have is here is the one guy in Starfleet who's struggling with mental health and stress, and he has to bear all of that. And then it's kind of like the show saying, you see, this is what mental health problems look like. Um, but you have, like, one character who has to bear, like, he's the representative for this entire subgroup. And in Babylon 5, it's it's very clear in telling us people get traumatized and can have horrible uh, mental health consequences from that. And this can take any kind of form. This can be Ivanova's case of having a family that got ripped apart. This can be Sinclair's case of getting this hero complex or uh, almost a death wish. This can be Garibaldi's version of of getting into alcoholism. So... It's never the show telling you, you see, guys, if soldiers come back from war broken, they are just like the guy who is hallucinating about ghosts in the wall. 
it's more like no he's under this incredible stress and this is one shape that this can take under these specific circumstances and by not making it this one token example but just part of this larger world i think it immediately becomes a lot more credible as that and you just found the and that's, yeah oh god let don't let me get started on that one we won't <laughs> but yes let that's a good point um so at least I mean in this episode that 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 uh, people have expecting us to really make our hats hat hats explode, uh, we have at least one plot part that has worked out well for us. I think that that's something good to emphasize. <laughs> we have uh, with the second twenty minute mark in mind. Do we want to transition to the less than ideal parts because there is a nice segue in this right now? Yeah, let's do that. Or Mike, do you want to mention something more? No, go on. Well. Apart from anything else, one of the uh, interesting things about uh, Amos is how does the rest of the crew react to him, right? We have Garibaldi, who is the most understanding, the most point of contact. And we have other people of the crew like Ivanova, who takes into account what he is saying, but also still refers to him just as a lurker. And we see there's like a much bigger professional difference there. And then we have somebody like, somebody like Franklin, who says, oh... You won't have this entire investigation just on the word of a dirty fucking lurker from down below that I don't care about, even though I run a clinic for them in my spare time. And that is, you know, nice to see that apart from any of the Robins plot, Franklin is a prick in this plot as well. And this is can be our segue to talk about Franklin in general in this episode and the many adventures that he goes on. Um, maybe first of all to that kind of thinking of having a clinic for the lurkers, but then talking about one like that. I think this kind of two ways of thinking or two ways or ways of behaving is something that you see not not super rarely in like psychologists, therapists, social workers. Sometimes they have they can function super well in these jobs and do all of these tasks. And when you meet them for a coffee, they are so biased and heartbreaking. I have had that at work so often that I thought how the hell can you work with these people and then turn your back and then, then I don't know, joke about the autistic boy in the back. It's sometimes you have that and it's it's not, it's, it's more often than you think. You can run it like a clinic for farm animals, right? There's <laughs> no issue dehumanizing them in the same turn. So yeah, of course that happens. Um, yeah, Michael, do you want to get us started off on Franklin or? Well, uh, to me, um, to, to go... Um... To take on the, the the comment you made, Leila, um, my question to to Franklin would be: If you consider them so much of they are like like trash, why the hell are you running this clinic? Do you have some hero complexes to achieve, or uh, do you? I don't know. Oh, that's interesting because I think very soon, and I'm not spoiling anything while saying that because it should be very, very soon, we will have an episode that shows us these fucking annoying hero complexes he actually has, I think. But I think it all already got through here and there, the the god complex <laughs> of being uh, a doctor and being able to save life. We will definitely answer this question, like, why the hell do you still run this uh, complex? Probably just in this discussion, because I, I feel like there is an answer in here already that's, that's going to be useful. Um, I, I think as as we get into this half of the discussion in the episode, 
we, we should probably acknowledge there is, of course, a very simple explanation for all of this, what happens in this episode, which is, it's a TV show, it's the 90s. Unfortunately, this is the kind of episodic love story that sometimes happens in 90s TV shows. And we can just leave it at that in terms of as an explanation what the heck happens here. At the same time, we should also acknowledge it's not fun discussing it in that way because then we just sit back and say, yep, it's shit. Let's move on. By the way, now that we get into this, do you actually have to cut out all of my swear words because it's on the internet and it's... No, no. There's always a little... There's always just a little box that I can click at. There is explicit content. This is not suitable for children, which for Babylon 5 is in general already the case, so that's fine. Um, so, so I think it's still worth asking ourselves, like, why, Franklin? What is going on here? Even if the writers were just doing their normal 90s thing, I think there is something more substantial that we can get out of that. And talking about the hero complex he might have is a good start. Yeah, so... Time in there and to stop you, Alex, because um, you say, yeah, the 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 authors just doing their job. They did a really good job in most moments so far. So this is a fuck up. I can't look over and say you did your job because no, you fucking didn't. No, you can still expect better. Yeah, I mean, but that's the question. Was he just? Was this an accident? Or did they want to write a character who has obvious flaws, but you kind of still like them? Or did they want to write a character people just hate on? This we can discuss. I, I would be careful with that because sometimes I feel like we interpret a lot into these roles from our perspective and give the writers maybe a little bit too much credit with that. Yes, but that's why it's a question. Because yeah, yeah. I, for me, if they wanted to write a character who should be likable but has just some very, very fundamental flaws... With Franklin, that was a total disaster from my point of view. Mm -hmm. It's like a car crash. You don't want to watch, but you can't look away. Eight houses, you. Yeah, the, the, the whole problem of this love story is it, it doesn't feel genuine. It's just like, oh, a woman. And I mean, you can fall in love with your patient and you can fall in love with someone you meet in a work context like that, but that is only like authentic and understandable if it has more time. If they met like that and then meet again over years, over months, then you could understand, but that is just creepy. Yeah, this this whole love struck thing, it's such a bullshit. There's, there's no substantial ground you can build any form of... of yeah, relationship on and it, it, the way it's it's portrayed is like he he sees this woman uh pretty on and then then his brain is i don't know somewhere else on vacation or something yes and that's terrifying because she he sees this he finds her pretty and she's completely helpless exposed to him in the most vulnerable way ever I mean, she's not just an unconscious patient. She's an unconscious patient from the past. She doesn't know where she is or when she is. Then... Who has just lost her only loved one as well? We yes. should add that on top of that, yeah. Yeah, that's, that, that's also the problem. It's it's like, oh, here's that. Well, okay, let's bank the next one available. I, and I... Even, even if, it, if the relationship wasn't good, and even if they had this on-off, thing or whatever this relationship is supposed to be um it feels so unnatural especially i mean this this 
circumstances she wakes up in are so enormous differently um, for what she experienced so far. And she is walking through all of this like, yeah, like she's taking a stroll in the park. Oh, no problem. Oh, there's some lions killing a child. Oh, doesn't matter. I have no problem with that. That That's how this feels. I think for, this is where for me the, the 90s-ness of this writing comes in because I feel like this episode isn't far off a portrayal of her that I, I can kind of get behind where I can excuse most of her interactions in this episode by just saying, like she mentions in the beginning, for her, it doesn't feel like there's a, th a hundred year gap. For her, it's I went to sleep, I wake up the next morning and this is where I am. And I can believe that this is overwhelming and shocking to a degree that she's just so numb that she just goes along with most of it and doesn't even have time to process anything that is happening. And ultimately then leads to this last in, uh, interaction that she has with him where she says, okay, honestly, all of this is too much. You have told me about 12 different alien species. I haven't processed any of that. None of that stuck. For me, it's just, I went through this with tunnel vision. Now I will go back to Earth and just try to catch myself. The problem is that I have with this interpretation is that then the writers have to write in, oh, but I hope you wait for me because honestly, I actually got invested in this relationship, which is completely unnecessary. And if we leave that out, I can completely buy that for her, it's so much shock and tunnel vision that she just kind of dazedly goes through this entire episode and all the romance is just this complete one-sided projection by Franklin onto this woman, which I, in many parts, already feels like it. Maybe she was just letting him down, Amy. <laughs> yeah, but I, I totally agree. If this was what it is supposed to be, um, it wouldn't it would be fine for me, but the problem is this this paralyzing, this this stunning effect. Um, I wouldn't buy it because it's not portrayed in in a way that's believable. I mean, as they, they they take away this this. I I can't cry. Yeah, that's because uh, you were frozen. Um, and sorry, that that's the most stupid thing you can do. Tears in this moment or or. The ability to cry would have been so much more convincing uh, to portray what was happening there in this moment in her. I mean, she's not talking much about what she's feeling. I mean, so the one step. You have to show it in some way and saying, yeah, you can't cry because you were um, in, in the froster for a few years. You would still be sobbing like when you cry, you just would not have any tears. I mean, you know, there, there is always this option of saying, you know, it's it's stasis. Your brain chemistry might be freaked up to the degree that this isn't possible. I, I think it's still like a story way by is a stupid decision. And although I will have to say, I don't think it's the stupidest thing. The stupidest thing is a step right after where she's like, oh, no, my husband died. But then, yeah, honestly, the marriage wasn't going so great. So, you know, we had been uh, apart from like... The idea that she rationalizes a lack of emotion by saying my relationship wasn't ideal blows my mind. Yes, but I don't know. I mean, if you think that they really, before space travel was explored or was a thing that humanity was actually capable of, that they had this on and off relationship and then stepped into these stasis things to, to blow themselves into space, not knowing if they would ever be found or who they would, would find them. 
kind of also feels like, I don't know, a crazy couple that goes on a suicide mission. That's, although with that, I would be very careful, or I would be reserved on that, because then I get into the territory of saying, okay, I actually buy that she is this professional about all of this, because if she is screened on the level of modern-day astronauts, then okay, she will just react with ways that are not relatable to me at all, because this is a completely different level of person that I choose for this sort of mission. That I could buy. Actually, the first time I watched that episode, that was my interpretation. I mean, this uh, it, it makes more sense than assuming it's just an everyday girl that gets onto this mission, right? Yeah, I mean, well, the the point is, who do you get to do these kind of jobs? I mean, this it, it does feel like a bit of a suicide mission to me because, I mean, we do not know what... Um, the the technology was at that time 100 years before um, what we see. The question is, would they be safe? Could they be safe? Um, is is there some sort of yeah way to to go back for them? Um, so yeah, if if that's not the option, okay, then it really could be just a group of of uh, yeah crazy people shut into uh, uh, space. Because a sane person would not do this. I mean, it's it's this thing where it's it has to be crazy people. On the other side, of course, it can't be crazy people because they will kill each other, right? It's this is like who do you choose for the first spacewalk? Who do you choose for the first mission to the moon? It's these kinds of people, astronauts, and they must have this like perfect mixture of being just crazy enough about this job but also sane enough that you can rely on them to be professionals but we still run into the problem that Mike you mentioned at the beginning we can explain our way around the fact that she is just as such an exceptional person under such exceptional circumstances that it kind of sort of makes sense for her to react in this way but that is us putting that into the episode and not the other way around and therefore it is a little bit of a problem and None of that makes the love story from Franklin's side yeah. any more appropriate. Yeah. But the first time, the first time I watched that episode, and she was standing there and telling him how fucked up her marriage was, and um, before they stepped into these, uh, these, uh, these things, uh, these thing, um, I thought that I don't know. I had this. Uh, that sounds stupid now that I try to say it out loud. But I had the stomach feeling of those were two people who probably were a betrayed and professional about this but had just such a fucked up daily life that they just kind of shot themselves into oblivion knowing that they would probably not wake up or only one of them would wake up and it was just the solution that they wanted for the, the rest of their existence. I don't know. I was I was immediately at that interpretation the first time I watched this. Maybe because she was so cold and distant, maybe that was just how my brain filled this gap that you have addressed. Yeah, well, I, I have to admit uh, I am just going there in my my head um when you telling uh, me all all this because i was so in shock of the things franklin was pulling off i was just why why are you doing this because i mean yeah the the whole situation doesn't make any sense apart from this yeah let's get to know each other i mean he is i i feel like he would be someone who would say, you have to be professional. You can't behave like that. And he is not behaving professional, not at all. But I mean, I think, 
uh, I mean, this is as horrid as all of this is, I wouldn't say it doesn't make any sense because at least for me, the one saving grace about all of this is that it feels perfectly in line with this character. From everything that I've seen, he is somebody who... Well, we, we think of episodes like in uh, Infection, right? We know he's a workaholic. He will work on a project day in, day out. We also know this man has no personal life. Like, it is so inappropriate for this doctor to be dating his patient, but we already know that he doesn't have a life outside of that. He treats everybody like a patient to the point where he starts making up food plants for every person that he knows. So he doesn't have this off switch. And then when I think, okay... Dr. Franklin is feeling lonely. Who is he going to start dating? It's got to be a patient because he literally only meets patients or work colleagues that he can't date because he's in the same military as them. The guy spends his free time running a clinic in Down Below, probably not because he cares about lurkers. We know he doesn't in this episode, but just because being a doctor is his favorite thing to do ever. And at this point, I feel like, yeah, he is this workaholic, but also... We've already known he's not very professional about it. Nothing of the things that he did with the child in, in Believers were in any capacity professional. So it's it's this weird combination where I think his own superiority complex takes over so quickly that, yeah, his idea of professional just gets thrown out of the window. You can say that, but still, even if you are okay with dating your own patients, you can easily find a patient who is less relying on you and she is in a less vulnerable state. If I just go to Dr. Franklin because I broke my leg or because I want to get a vaccination refreshed or whatever, it's less problematic than when I wake up from a coma 100 years later. Uh, yeah, I mean, none of this is making an excuse that Franklin's behavior is more acceptable. For me, this is just what tells me this is not writers fucking up in this one episode and writing this character in a weird way that makes no sense and he would never do. This is for me. Oh no, he's just re reaching his logical conclusion of, after being a fucked up character for one and a half seasons that we've seen so far. Okay, yeah. And and I think on that level, you know, you say there are more appropriate patients to do this for. I, I can honestly that exactly. Well, but you know, <laughs> it could be less terrible than it already is. But I think for Franklin, this doesn't even come up because I think Franklin legitimately can see himself as somebody every person needs saving even the completely healthy commander he must save with a food plan everybody except for him is on the brink of death anyway whether or not you were frozen 100 years ago in the grand scheme of things of franklin's universe that makes no difference he needs to save you just as hard he just sounds like an asylum doctor from the 19th century yeah yeah, yeah, I, I, I didn't really know how to, to, to say that or to point it out but the way he is all doing this, I, I, I don't know, it really felt creepy to me. Every had yes. ghost bumps, but this was so, I don't know, it, 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 it was Why did I wake up in your bed? Oh, I took you to my quarters. It was just closer than the med bay. <laughs> just, oh my God. Not when you just wake up from stasis and someone is there and petting your head. It's yeah. not like a touch on the shoulder explaining you where you are and whatever. It's just constantly petting your head. Slowly stroking your forehead very delicately. I could buy this if there was would uh, like like an, an older lady where where you have this 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 mother like figure um, that would feel differently. 
Yeah. But from a middle-aged man that has no connection to you and I mean, if if he would have just patted her head shortly, mm. it's, it's okay. Calm down, and then getting his head, putting his hand away. Okay, I could have lived with that, but it's like Franklin keeps going. He will not stop, <laughs> and it's stop. I I don't know what he is. He trying to to make her, her her hair shine more. I don't know. And it gets a meeting to this incredibly possessive level, right? He takes her to his quarters because that's closer. Sure, my guy, that that makes a lot of sense. But then it's also the the because command. Sure there were not no one who could have helped him bring her. And the commander of the station comes to him, and the security chief comes to him, and Franklin heroically takes it on to protect his patient from them as well, and immediately gets confrontational from them. And so yeah, it is this like epitome of him just living in his own little world, and I think this is also why it doesn't occur to him. He would probably agree. Oh yeah, what he's doing is highly unprofessional and highly creepy if anybody but him were doing it. But it is Franklin who has only the best of intentions, so of course in that it's exceptionally okay. L like we see in Believers where he says you have to believe and you have to respect other people's cultures and then continues doing exactly the opposite for the rest of the episode. I think this level of double standard is in there. Um... But I, I was not here for the scene where he brought her into his own quarters because I had to get something to eat. Yeah. Huh? Oh, I'm glad. It's not great. <laughs> uh, but I mean, all of this is just to say there is a silver lining here. And the silver lining for me is this isn't a one-time occurrence. This is something that in certain ways is in line with his character. So I can have a tiny, tiny little bit of trust that maybe the writers in the long run are aware of the fact that this is a problem and this isn't the character we should be cheering on. So maybe there is potential for change or just a very smooth kick out of the airlock, whatever comes first. And we would be happy with it both, I think. I can definitely think of episodes where I have more specific other problems with him, but I don't know if the writers... I still sometimes feel like the writers were really fond of him. Hmm. But we can discuss that at any point later. I mean, we have this, the the older woman who had this healing alien machine. Yeah. Her daughter and Franklin, there was something It was on. the proto version of this. Yeah, but this felt more, it, it didn't feel right, but it felt more normal or, or natural mm. than this one. I mean, the the things he's saying, the way how is he's saying them. Uh, I mean, in 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 the end, this he will need a place to stay. I can help. I mean, this is... yeah. No, Honestly, yeah. I, I I need. When he said this, I I was like, oh gosh, I need therapy right now. Feel it doesn't not it doesn't even feel like he's doing something out of fondness or of on on the level I like you. It just. Yeah, on this on this creepy um, level of I don't know, be my pet. It's yeah. it feels very much like after everybody on the crew rejected his food plans, Phantom needed a different project, and you know Garibaldi puts together uh, motorbikes in his in his apartment, and I guess Franklin does the same with women, and it's it's just a problem. Uh, but yeah, I. I, I doll to 
construct. Yeah, just, yeah. With maybe, maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's gonna help. But I, yeah, I, th I think it, it leaves us in this place where really the biggest question is, uh, will this be recognized as a problem at any time? And I am hopeful that it will be, but I can also see that it's possibly a very long and rocky road for, for somebody to get there. I really like, though, um, how uh, Sheridan um, reacted to um, Franklin, but also generally in this mm. in this episode, even though he has quite a um, few screen time compared to other moments, if I compare it with um, Sinclair. Yeah. Um, I really liked how he shut up Franklin. <laughs> um, I mean, Sinclair would have been a bit more calm, I think, mm. how I memorize it. Um, so, yeah, uh, Sheridan going there with, I'm not going to have any, uh, take any words from you in this case, um, was really like, I, I think it is this also revelation of, of seeing other characters in this show see what Franklin is doing and are weirded out by it and not taking this, which is already a good step in the right direction. And yeah, I, I think Sheridan oh, doesn't get a lot of screen time, but he is quick like also to connect the dots. He takes seriously what Garibaldi has to say, uh, what what Franklin says, uh, what uh, what Maria herself says. So there is this level of, okay, he's just here to connect the dots. He's delegating responsibilities successfully here. Um, I'm I'm very glad to see that. And I mean, if we stick with Sheridan for a second, we have what feels to me very much like a season one style shootout in the end to resolve this episode. So of course the commander of the station has to go down there, which is painful to see on the other hand. I did like how much more tactical he was with this, with like sending people around, taking a big squad with him, ordering heavy weaponry and stuff. He still shouldn't be there alongside Ivanova, but okay, I can buy that. Okay, we want to see that in the field he's actually a capable commander. Fine, let's. I I can get past that with, with a little bit of effort. Yeah, yeah, it it was a bit more. It it was bigger, a bit more of an effort, um, and not like the the. Sheridan Garibaldi show uh, that go down to uh, yeah down below and have a shoot off. Yeah. Um, so I I really like the how they constructed this though it felt it's sad for me. I, on on one hand it felt rather quick. Mm. Um, I mean we have uh, when when uh, Sheridan comes down that. I don't know. There are two people lying unconscious on the on the floor. Yeah, yeah. Um, like it's something uh, I don't really remember. Garibaldi pulled them out or something, uh, and we didn't see this, which is interesting for a change. Um, but it also felt rather fast-paced compared to what was until now, especially first season. Um, and then this. Ah, one sting will, uh, wouldn't uh, hurt much. Okay, then we sting with all we have. Uh, and then it's just, yeah, we, we, we shoot with everything we have on this creature. And well, that resolves the problem. This is the, the second big part where I feel like the whole monster story of this episode 
has a lot of potential, but it does feel a little bit undercooked. It it kind of needs to wrap up very quickly in the end. But maybe because we have crossed the next 20 minute mark, maybe we can talk about this monster part briefly. And um, aside from the concept of the creature in and of itself, the most interesting thing for me was actually the council discussion uh, where we have like this presentation of, okay, aliens are concerned about something weird going on on the station. We have this little exchange between Londo and Jakar and two different ways of dealing with this rumor that is going around the station. And I really enjoyed that part. Maybe we want to talk about that for a second. I love Londo's comment. <laughs> yes. Though I, I really like this way how to connect um, this this creature, this killing with um, yeah Jakar's story with with the upcome uh, the the coming darkness that will um, yeah appear on uh, B five or everywhere in um, the universe uh, and yeah it was a bit of a of of a myth. Or legend, or let's say more of a legend telling we have here, um, and that it is an important part that is obviously well known at least to a certain group um, of aliens. So we don't have this this ominous, unsubstantial thing in the in the background. Um, it's it, it's starting to get more sharp around the edges more clear what is going to happen um, and where to look at. And I, I think when we're talking about this level of it being an indicator that something evil is taking shape, you know, the entire season is titled The Coming of Shadows. So clearly things are taking shape. And uh, yeah, this is an aspect that I always absolutely love for any kind of, you know, big threat that is out there. If I think of something like Tolkien's uh, lands of Mordor, which are this like empire where there is orcs, there's the Haradrim, there's the people of Rum, the Easterlings, people from the south and such. Just this idea that there's this vast world and alliance that this dark force is drawing power from. And we get a little bit of this here that, yeah, there are these rumors of dark things lurking on distant worlds and they are all like accumulating on this distant world with an ominous, fantastical name to it that I absolutely adore. What I liked also was that the one who was telling the story was not someone who was well established, yeah. but more from the sidelines. Like, um, yeah, it, it, does, it didn't feel like, like a special thing to know. Like, uh, I don't know, something Lando would pull out from his code, like I have uh, bribed a few people and now I have some very special uh, informations to m at my hands. Um, but yeah, it's 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 common. It's, yes. it's, I think that's the point that was important here. It's common. A lot of different species, a lot of different cultures talk about that and understand each other on this level. And Londo was the one making jokes on it. So there's definitely a big thing going on and the Centauri do not seem to be in. Yeah, and I think they seem to intentionally remove themselves from this. I th we, we talk about, we, we talked in the beginning especially a lot about how the different species are styled and the Centauri are definitely, you know, a little bit this 
Napoleonic, you know, big conquerors and colonialists uh, of this galaxy. But apart from yes, but apart from this all visual style and the militaristic and history part of it, of course, goes always also along with the era that they represent in human history. This is also the history of enlightenment, which has many bright sides, but also means that you are very keen on saying everything that came before was stupid, they were the dark ages, and everybody was burning witches, and that was definitely something that the medieval people did, and not we ourselves in early modern times and that uh, all that jazz. So this, like, willful ignorance of anything that came before, because we are the civilized people, and all this, like, native folk on the different islands and continents, they are all stupid, and what do they know? And I, it's it's so interesting for me to have this voice of enlightenment, quote-unquote, which usually in science fiction is always the given good guys, right? We all know that in most science fiction stories, you move past religion, you only trust in science, and then you become the good guys and the federation and everything turns great. And here it's very much so, uh, shown that no, no, this can be an extremely conservative, cons extremely like ignorant position to inhabit if you're like bottle in your horizon to what only you and your current understanding wants to see. I mean, one thing that I really enjoyed the first time we watched Babylon 5 was to see these different perspectives on what religion, um, myth, and superstitions can have um, as a function in society. Um, because I think well, the, the general, uh, very often the sci-fi perspective on that that we have in Star Trek would be that that was there before we had science and our science can explain to us where life came from so we don't need these stories anymore. And there was more to that, I guess. There was more of a collective collective memory of people, of stories, of art, of music, of, 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 of traditions. Um, so, so that when you really analyze us can find more than this was just before we had science. Um and also to kind of explore what kind of truth in any kind of superstition there there uh, can be. Um, that's definitely a, a topic that uh, in this show remains interesting. And I think it's notable here that Jakar is obviously the main stand, and apart from all the smaller alien races, Jakar is the one that opens his big book and we see an illustration of the monster and such. And it's important, I think, that it is him because we know that he is somebody who recognizes the value in his religious text, but he's also not a zealot. When he had suspicions that there is an old enemy out there that might be lurking on Zahadum, he didn't grab his Bible and say, the gospel has spoken and we all must follow the prophecy now. No, he got into a spaceship and went looking. So he is somebody who recognizes, okay, our myths and superstitions are a collective memory that has value, but it's also not saying I'm the blindly trusting in the divine word of God. I'm working with this as a source that is practical, that I can follow. And I, I think that is important to be able to include religion in this story in a way that doesn't also turn it into this magical MacGuffin. Yeah. I mean, it holds some kind of truth, it holds some kind of a storytelling that for a reason means a lot, meant a lot to a lot of people over thousands of years. That's important to remember. I was, though, a bit sad about the design we have here in this book because it feels like a lot like um, some sort of combination between um, some, some demonic um, creature and um, 
a wolf drawing um and therefore really close to to medieval um dark ages religious stuff um and i would have wanted something a bit more um yeah a bit, bit more new a bit more creative than just a recycled version of um of, of medieval drawings because i'm pretty sure that if you search um in the on the internet a bit you'll find a lot um drawings or or um caricatures that are going in this direction uh in in the religious um kind of thing or in the wolfish part would be when uh yeah people were still accused of being werewolves uh, and being um uh I, i'm not sure no they were not hang i think they were um watered I mean, at first, at first, most of them were hanged, and then it depended on the hysteria, I guess, what you did with the body afterwards to keep it not intact. They were at least they were really creative, but yeah, these these kind of of drawings. I think I, I'm not sure if I'm mixing up things, but I might remember something from um, a medieval pamphlet where um, a drawing in this kind of direction um, was was there on it. It would have been a cool link to have the drawing more resemble the description that we get from Amos, right? A sphere encased in lightning and stuff like that, where we could have seen, okay, the image drawn into the book is something that is close to what other people observed it as. And that would have though, also been more unique. Yeah, though though this, this tall, horned, um being is that the shape is something we we see um uh, when i think shortly before the creature yeah yeah we, we get to see it right like nice. it's vanishes yeah and uh, just the design in general could have been more original in that case yes but maybe we also get later an involved explanation on why this was chosen which we can still talk about what we think about that but maybe what saved the book pages for me actually were the written signs on the other page because it had this very, very familiar looking, not very um, uh, um, originally uh, illustration, but then it had these, um, you saw the uh, um, non language, which uh, looked to me like you read it from top to bottom and it was in little pictograms so it had a completely different style, writing style which i just like that you have this one this one familiar page but then you have a completely different writing system that is more like this ancient writing systems like this I, it's in general also this mix where it is a book like the bible but it's made all out of what looks more like papyrus which you would expect in a scroll so it's it's kind of this mix up which it, i mean will definitely learn about all these cultures a little bit more so there will be more meaning filled into all of this but i can also definitely see that you know as somebody who's big fan of very alien designs for being as exotic as it was the design of the creature itself could have been a little a little more a bit too obvious to mm. me that's that's i think that's the problem yeah um if, if it would be a bit more shrouded, okay, could this be this or this as an original uh, for for this um, design? I think that would be different. But since it's, yeah, it, it's like punching me in the face when I look at it, 
Um, it's, yeah, it makes me a bit sad. The last element of this that is like loosely connected, which I'm going to use as one last excuse to make a Tolkien reference. I do like that in all these discussions about this creature, they are referring to it as a soldier of darkness, just as this idea that similar to the Balrog in, in the Mines of Moria, the really scary thing about it is that we are fighting one of these things and it's a super dangerous and scary monster. And it's just a foot soldier of what is to come. This isn't like the Dark Lord himself returning to something or a, a dangerous demon ghost. There's only 12 of... No, this is just a random entity that probably like thousands of exist out there in the galaxy. And they are all conglomerating on this like one world out there. And this just as adding to the sense of scale that we are starting to deal with like mythical proportions of things that are happening. And even just the smallest portion of this is really dangerous to us. And that I kind of liked and just in terms of like the name that was chosen for it. Yeah, I have to think there's there's a to go um further with the with the talking references. Um there is a drawing of uh, the different sizes of the dragons mm. from uh, the talking world and um Smaug, which is portrayed in, in The Hobbit is I'm not sure if he's the the smallest one, but it's certainly one the smallest one. And yeah, to to think um, how big, uh, especially in this in this drawing, the other ones are, um, is really really scary. So it it goes indirectly this direction, right? We we get an example of something big and scary, and then being told about well, actually. This was a tiny thing. You will have so much bigger problems to deal with later on. So I have to say, um, I'm really, really strongly reminded again um, of Mass Effect. Um, and not, not necessarily the, the circumstances, but it feels again like, the, I mean, the, the story uh, is really familiar. Um, we have in, in Mass Effect, we have this legend of um, a yeah a creature, um, base alien race that is out there that has um, destroyed almost the whole uh, universe and this the the Protheans the the um, yeah most developed uh, alien species uh, of that time was completely wiped out. Um, I'm kind of expecting to find, uh, yeah, one Prothean um, resemblance uh, in, in, in one of the episodes coming. I if, if I think of Mass Effect and this creature, I, it just reminds me of fighting banshees and I get horrible flashbacks of, of screeching entities morphing through walls. I, I think there is definitely this parallel here, although... What fascinates me as, as actually a key difference between the two is like with the Protheans being dead and the Reaper invasions and such, one of the things that Reapers are very good at is deleting all of this cultural memory, right? Like in the Mass Effect universe, there is nobody who could open up the holy book to find descriptions of this so easily because there the destruction was so complete and total. And here we have like the Narn and such who were touched by this but not entirely wiped out. So it's, it'll be interesting to see like how how parallel to each other these stories will develop. 
at this point, I have to say, I when I watched it for the first time, I saw all of these signs that something bigger was going on in the galaxy, and I was curious about what would happen next. I was curious about why they were all going to the room, what this address that Chikar had given us actually meant. But I wasn't fully on board yet. That was this. These are not the episodes yet where I'm fully invested and totally where I have total trust that it was worth it because all of these little signs that were here in this episode I still remember as, yeah, okay, something's going on, this TV show has a plot, but why exactly is it interesting? It completely was a riddle to me at this point. I mean, especially because like we are talking about something like Mass Effect and, and Tolkien and for all the love that these uh, works deservedly get, isn't exactly the most complex and compelling like sort of story in terms of others. Very clearly evil guys and very clearly good guys and yeah, they're gonna fight at some point I guess. And like uh, with no further intricacies it's easy to imagine that you could have a sci-fi show with this kind of build up and then it's just, yeah, yeah. you're gonna have one big space battle in the end and that's gonna be it. There was, there was the point I was thinking what can make this more? Because I always felt like there has to be more with your build-up, and I totally had no idea what that could be. <laughs> See, this is where we can talk about Star uh, Mass Effect again, which tries really hard, to, uh, hard towards the end to make something very experimental with it, and it it kind of, at least in how critics reacted to it, fell flat very hard on its nose when it first attempted that. Um, but uh, we we will get to to things when we get there. For now, I think we've talked quite exhaustively about this episode. Uh, maybe let's move on to our little tapestry, which is this beautiful roster that we've created with all the episodes that we're going to talk about. And we are slowly adding more and more threads to basically the connective tissue of Babylon 5. Because, like you already mentioned, there is a plot here, clearly, that is developing. But it is still very much a 90s level plot where, you know, there might be a bad guy accumulating and then in some season finale we have to deal with that. So we are also looking at all the themes, all the character elements, the little developments that might be interesting for us. And just as a very short recap, currently the big strings that we have are one that is some sort of coming storm. We've already noticed that in the second season we have seen more hints towards something big bad coming. The Technomages were talking about that for instance. Then, as a holdover from Season 2, we have the whole big Minbari storyline, which now has less to do with this mystery about Sinclair and more with Dylan's change. Then we have uh, London Mr. Morden, which so far seems to be the biggest threat uh, looming immediately, and uh, London getting deeper and deeper in into this little pact with the devil, which is funnily alluded to in this episode when Garibaldi says, oh yeah, you know, maybe maybe uh, our crazy guy was correct in uh, assuming London might have been making some uh, uh, pacts in, in that style. And the last big threat that we have is just uh, the crew in general developing. So Garibaldi returning to his duty, Ivanova getting promoted, things like that. Now, with respect to all of that, I think we can all agree that our main coming storm threat has gotten a little of an update. Things are moving towards Zahadun. Uh, other than that, things in this episode that felt relevant to um, the the plot overall, relevant to the story of the station overall, and of course, most importantly, things that we might be 
looking forward to in terms of what other threats might come from this? Well, I would be interested to see um, what really is the, the connection of Jakar's book mm-hmm. with versus. And also maybe what do, it would be interesting to see if we get more information of what kind of details the other races can provide. Maybe to see the Jakar's book together with other stories. And I will add to that, how willful is the ignorance of the Centauri, right? Because we've definitely seen they get careless with things like the Nakalim feeder. So there are genuine just mistakes they make where they just get so ignorant that they forget stuff. But is this something where you may, may, how much is Londo himself saying, oh, the idea of scary forces out there is preposterous. That would never happen. There's definitely not like wish-granting genies out there that somebody could make possibly a, 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 the Faustian pact with that has backfired horribly and now he doesn't know how to get out there. That, that's crazy talk. That will never happen. So I, I wonder, like, how much is this also just playing up this part because he doesn't want anybody to know about it? I think on that plot, that's it. Yes, yes. No, I don't want to open up that issue. I mean... That's uh, all we want to know about what's, will, what will happen in the future. We do not talk about the rest, okay? This is... Yeah, I, I think as we were watching the episode, I already said, like, no... Franklin's not going to get a call back from this girl because why, why would she? Uh, honest, no. That's that's not even remotely to spoil territory of Franklin and his interactions here. He was not even on his first date and talked about moving in together. Like this is just <laughs> not going to fly. Um, I I I think it was nice to see picked up again uh, talking about the crew in general that. Uh, Garibaldi's role as sort of the Diana Troy of our cast, like being the one that deals with uh, counseling people and such the most. I was very glad to see that this got picked up again. And, uh, you know, if we look forward to even big storm is coming and things are going to go wrong, other characters might need some counseling, might benefit from uh, Garibaldi being there. I want to at some point have a podcast where I can talk about how problematic it is when you have a counselor or a therapist who can read your thoughts. But that's just on a completely different account. I had to make that comment. I'm sorry. I know. <laughs> we will have telepath plots in this show as well, right? Yes, but they are not. I think they would think otherwise. <laughs> um, but where were we? Yeah. Um. We still also have uh, the whole idea of Captain Sheridan settling into his command. And I think in a distant star last week's episode, we had him very much struggling with all of this. This time around, he felt very much back in the saddle. He was delegating, he was in the field active and such. So it feels like this part, he managed to get over some of the issues that he had. He confronted Franklin in ways that felt good to see. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Very satisfying there. So looking towards the future, I think for me, the biggest question that this episode leaves open is um, how much more are we immediately going to be confronted with the fact that either people are fleeing the coming storm or going towards it? Because we've seen both of these yet, and there seem to be so many individual forces in this galaxy that the alien races know about 
that are reacting to something happening out on the rim and how much more is this going to become an issue and how long is it going to take until you know official forces take note of that like how long how many technologies have to go across the rim before earth alliance says hey guys what what, what what's happening there this is weird right and this just this pile just starts getting bigger now they're getting a report that one of their colony ships got rerouted by a weird entity for no apparent reason surely somebody will take note of that and start investigating i would hope yeah i i would have phrased it hopefully someone will take note of this yeah because, well i just uh, read today a, a, a book where the the um bureaucracy was was a uh, a big part in it again and how horribly it can work um, and things get twisted and yeah realistically I should say somewhere on earth there is a drawer with a document inside of it now hopefully somebody is gonna open that again and not forget about it alright I think in terms of our tapestry this is enough. This episode doesn't really open up a lot of new questions, I don't think. It's just moving along what you already saw. So, and I think this is going to be a little bit briefer than usual, just because um, we, we we had like this little gap of the special in between. Uh, but let's let's take a quick trip into our post box and see one or two comments that we want to highlight. We will still encourage everyone to... Uh, give us more nice comments because uh, we always like reading them um but we had a handful that were definitely very poignant to uh, today's episode uh one was by our uh, recurring friend klaus who has been leaving us long comments as usual and on the last week's episode uh, on the distant star he uh, fully agreed with us uh, writing franklin ticked me off this episode as far as i'm concerned he overstepped himself that line on Ivadova was cringe and inappropriate, talking about the expanding borders of the Russian frontier. <laughs> and uh, he says Franklin needed a long discussion with HR, which, yeah, Babylon 5 needs an HR department. I think this would be very nice. And I, I, I think this is important to mention because Frank uh, Garibaldi talks about counselors being a part of the station, but we see that, like, any time the show deals with mental health issues and also people overstepping their boundaries, it's characters having to interact and like individual personalities have to fix themselves because they really isn't in the system of Earth Alliance an HR department that you can really turn to. Which is a problem because as long as most of our people in the crew are nice, everything is going fine, but there aren't really any checks and balances to fix that. We did have one comment from Texas Andler Shock uh, on, oh boy, the Franklin hate. Uh, this was the main one talking about. I think, Mike, you already addressed this. Um, I have the good news that from now on, it should get better. Why is there a question mark behind <laughs> Because in my memory, it does get better from here, but I, I think Layla might have a more succinct perspective on that. Um, no, I just I just had to think of one or two more episodes that were like one 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 time plots where uh, I just hated him. Okay. Sorry, but I don't I think... might uh, consider buying uh, a baseball bat for Franklin. 
we can give you like a little voodoo doll of him. That would be good. Um, right here, I like that. But I do think in terms of his romances, it never gets as bad as this one. Yeah. I don't think his creep level... I mean, he doesn't have that many successful romances. Well, this was also not very successful, I would guess. <laughs> but I, I think in terms of that level of creepiness, we've reached the bottom point. It, on professional levels, we might still hit some road bumps, but at least he's not. He, there's not going to be any more hair stroking from him, I don't think. So yeah. we're good on that. And, well, from Texas Unlashed, we also got a, a longer comment on uh, hyperspace in general. And uh, there we have to admit, we did have a, a full discussion on, on FTL travels in various science fiction settings, including Babylon 5, of course. We weren't very happy with that, though. Uh, so that is locked away in a vault for now. But we will eventually uh, talk about uh, hyperspace travel in Babylon 5 in its own special again. Probably using some episode examples, right? Like choosing episode examples from different shows and this one where hyperspace problems maybe uh, are yeah. a little thing. I mean, we already tried that, but my concept wasn't really ready. So we made a recording, um, but we did never um, um, publish it because yeah. I really like that topic. I really like to also play around with um, what kind of limitations we find interesting, what kind of um, space travel holds, what kind of story possibilities um also look a bit at the theory behind it, but not make it a physics lesson. I try my best, but... Yeah, so uh, because we, we had like one or two comments going into the technicalities of space travel and such, and those are very appreciated. It's a topic that we are passionate about, but um, we will give that its own space when we are better prepared for that. Yeah, we kind of just understanding of the, of the focus, and so we talked for an hour, and it was just... Yeah, I'm talking <laughs> past each other more. Yeah. We will fix that, and... Uh, Good news is going to be then probably Mikey can also be part of it. So, yay. Um, but okay, I think for uh, this week, this is going to be it um, for our episode discussion. And even though we, we might have rough patches of Franklin ahead, I think this season overall starts climbing from here because this is, I think, generally considered the real low point of season two. So we can be a little more hopeful, a little bit more excited for next week's episode, which is going to be, and as always, I have to double check that, it's going to be a spider in the web. You can get that. Micah, of course, won't know. Talia comes back. Yes. So talking about uh, mind-melding uh, th uh, therapists, we get some te uh, telepath action next week. Of course, as always, we have a community question that hopefully some answers we can look at in the post box next week. And this time around, it's going to be the same question that we answered ourselves in the beginning. If you had a chance to get locked up in a box and transported into the future 100 years, or let's open this up a little more, if you had a time machine and could travel to any place and time in the universe, what would your favorite destination be? Until then, and find us as always on basically all social media network platforms at the Third Age Podcast, but of course here on YouTube. We are cuter because here you can see us. We hope you enjoyed the episode and for the next time.